Welcome to another VJ Hemonk podcast, bringing you the latest updates in hematological oncology. Although virtual this year, the ASH 2020 meeting shared some exciting advances in the treatment landscape of myeloma. Today, Dr. Rakesh Popat and Dr. Karthik Ramasamy discuss their highlights from the data presented at ASH 2020, including the latest data in newly diagnosed myeloma, combination approaches, and novel BCMA targeting agents. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the myeloma sessions at VJ Hemog. My name is Rakesh Popat, and I'm a hematologist at University College Hospital, and I'm joined with Karthik Ramasamy, a hematologist at Oxford University Hospital. We've both been watching the ASH 2020 sessions avidly at the end of our seats, looking at all the latest data that's coming through to myeloma. But the question is, what does this mean to us in the community and also for those of us who are working in the UK? And so I'm really pleased to be having a discussion with one of our leading experts, Karthik, about various different aspects of multiple myeloma. So first, we're going to kick off with talking about newly diagnosed myeloma. So Karthik, what do you think some of the key uh, takeaway messages from ASH for patients with newly diagnosed myeloma were? Thank you, Rakesh. It's a real pleasure to, to talk to you about myeloma. Obviously, we're, we're missing out on having good chats about interesting data that's, that's coming through. So obviously, in the newly diagnosed setting, a number of uh, long reads from the major phase three trials that we've been seeing over the years have been read out. Uh, the first one is the IFM study comparing BRD versus BRD plus transplant uh, was read out, and the same with the EMNO2 trial uh, comparing you know, transplant versus BMP intensification was read out uh, longer term. Both of these trials have now got about uh, over seven years follow-up in both of them. The interesting thing is the IFM study clearly showed that having a, a transplant uh, at an 84-month median follow-up did not yet improve overall survival. Um, but clearly, the uh, earlier primary endpoint of progression-free survival was significantly better for the transplant arm, and that's clearly because the MRD negativity we get. Interestingly, the contrast was the EMNO2 trial, uh, which compared a similar sort of strategy of transplant versus no transplant and uh, they did find that the transplant arm had an improved uh, uh, overall survival advantage in comparison to the VMP intensification arm. So obviously that's very, very interesting. It's hard to compare between trials, but we know that the trial designs are different. But one thing that uh, I started to wonder is, um, lenalidomide maintenance meta-analysis have always shown a late divergence uh, uh, in overall survival after about four or five years. We do have one trial stopping lenalidomide maintenance at one year uh, because of the concern around SPM in the IFM study. And then we had the EMNO2 where len maintenance was given until progression. So that's interesting, but obviously there may be other lots of different reasons as to why we may have the differences. But I found that extremely interesting and striking and an area for us to watch because we all do transplant uh, you know, after induction in our first line setting for our transplant eligible patients in the UK. I don't know what your thoughts were in that, in that uh, two abstracts. Yeah. No, absolutely. So, so I think I think these were key, and and I think the nice thing about them is that we are seeing long term follow up data, which becomes incredibly important when we're looking at an overall survival endpoint. 
I guess for me, there are, as you pointed out, some key differences in the trial. We've got to remember that the EMNO2 trial used VCD as induction therapy, and the IFM trials used VRD as induction therapy. And then, as you say, there was differences in the maintenance. And we're still also awaiting for the DFCI part of the IFM trial, where lenalidomide maintenance was given long-term until progression. And you're right, it may be that we're not seeing a survival difference for the IFM data set, simply because um, patients stopped lenalidomide maintenance early. The other interesting bit that I took away from the EMNO2 study was the subgroup analysis, which looked at the group of patients who did not have an additional transplant, so they were randomized to have VMP, and then went on subsequently to have a later transplant. And when you look at that data, you can look at the PFS2 and overall survival data for those patients. They, the PFS2 and overall survival was inferior to the patients who had a stem cell transplant up front. And also of note, not all patients went on and were able to receive a stem cell transplant at relapse. So again, all of this data, I think, is really telling us that we need to be offering patients a stem cell transplant early on in their treatment pathway. Now, that has always been the approach of those of us who work in Europe and probably contrasts against what happens across the Atlantic in the US. But having said that, in this um, year of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have been deferring autotransplants in some subgroups of patients. And so th this kind of brings it up into your mind as to the validity of that approach and whether or not it is the right thing to do or not. Because what I'm finding is that now that we are able to defer transplants for some patients because of concerns on severe COVID, some patients are simply asking the question, actually, do I really need the transplant or can I just carry on with the treatment and have my transplant later? And I was still looking at this data, be concerned about delaying a transplant uh, for a long period of time. And I'd be very keen to offer patients a transplant early on, even though we are still uh, dealing with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. I find uh, what you've just said is, you know, it's extremely important because, I mean, obviously individual decisions have to be made based on the situations in front of you. Uh, but um, you would have seen the Forte trial, uh, and I'd be keen to hear your thoughts because obviously you started to compare and contrast the kind of induction approaches, VRD and VCD. It was quite striking to see, you know, KRD plus transplant versus KRD. You know, there was, uh, I mean, clear evidence that transplant, you know, added benefit. I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, that is quite profound. We, we've yeah. all felt KRD was a significantly, you know, probably in a significant add-on to VRD, but still there's a difference. I, I think you're spot on there. So I think even though um, we're using one of the most powerful induction regimens, KRD, by simply continuing with KRD, you have inferior outcomes compared to the incorporation of a stem cell transplant. So I think what, what this is telling us is that actually there is a significant role for a switch of therapy to high-dose alkylator with stem cell uh, transplantation. Now, whether or not it's the effect of a high-dose alkylator and the depth of MRD negativity you get from high-dose alkylator, or it's the resetting of the immune system through the new formation of the stem cells and the activated T cells that we uh, typically see and the immune uh, modulation and surveillance that's observed, I don't know. But I think it's 
becoming very, very clear that there is something specific about high-dose melphalan stem cell transplants that is, that is happening in the myeloma biology that's very different from PI, IMID, and corticosteroid treatment. So, so I, I look forward to additional data coming out for that. And just whilst we're talking about new and different induction regimens, I was quite impressed with the DVRD data that's coming through, which is the uh, Griffin analysis. And surely that's where um, we are going to be moving to, perhaps in five to 10 years, is going to be using the quadruplet of DVRD as induction, stem cell transplant, consolidation and maintenance. But of course, that is dependent on DVRD being funded. And within Europe, that becomes a problem. So I suspect what is more likely to be available for us in Europe is DVTD. And so I wondered, Karthik, what your feeling was with DVTD um, in the data that we're seeing presented at ASH. Absolutely. So clearly jumping from three drug to four drug combination regimens of the three important players, the CD38, the proteasome inhibitor and immunomodulated drug is really the way uh, to go. We've got Cassiopeia being read out and also published in Lancet, which is a trial which compared our current standard of care, VTD, to the datatumumab, uh, Valcate, thalidomide, dexamethasone. Significantly improved uh, stringent CR rates, significantly improved MRD negative rates on the datatumumab uh, added to the VTD arm. And also, uh, you know, significant improvement in uh, early uh, progression-free survival that we can see. One of the problems with uh, some of these trials early on is because we're getting quite uh, significant improved response rates, you have to wait for longer even for PFS to emerge in some of these studies. And that's what you know the Griffin study has shown. Uh, the Griffin study is the comparison of BRD versus uh, datatumumab uh, BRD treatment. And what you can again see is you can see a, a clear significant difference in the MRD negativity, but still yet to show a significant you know, PFS difference between the two arms because you know, we're still in the early two to three years of analyzing this data. What I can safely say from that four drug regimen is you do see very high MRD negativity rates. You already mentioned about the MRD negativity being a key piece of transplant. If that one domain is captured by just the addition of a fourth drug to your induction, uh, as you rightly said, immunomodulation may be part of the important second piece of the puzzle to what transplant gives, and that maybe the drugs alone won't be able to give. But at least if you're going to get very deep MRD negative rates, post-induction uh, in this patient population, then I think that's going to uh, you know, do these patients you know, a, a lot of good down the line with a very long uh, first remission period. But one thing that concerned me, I, I have to say, uh, Rakesh, is, um, I mean, I shouldn't say a concern, but it's an area to kind of follow through, is data coming from what, you, what you've also said previously, the IFM trial has got an American partner in the DFCA component of the VRD versus VRD plus transplant. Very interesting data from Nikhil Munshi's lab where they've compared patients on the VRD only arm who are relapsing after a period of time with patients who are on the VRD plus transplant arm relapsing after a period of time. And due, doing the mutational analysis, and there's clearly some differences there. Um, and what is your take on that? 
Yeah, so, so I think that's really interesting data because what we're seeing is a higher instance of mutations in patients who received high-dose melphalan. And, and this is something that's always been of concern to us by the use of high-dose alkylators and potentially the uh, predisposition to clonal evolution and further tumour resistance. And I must admit that many of us were concerned, particularly for patients with uh, 17P deletion, as, as we know that TP53 is a key gatekeeper of, of managing mutations in cell cycles. So, so that's one area that we've been uh, particularly concerned about. And, and I'd like to um, just see how that pans out. I'm not sure still however, what the direct relevance of this is, because whilst we are seeing these additional clones forming, stem cell transplantation still confers an improvement in overall survival and progression-free survival. So it may be that even though there's a higher splattering of mutations, that it, it isn't overall affecting the playing out of, of what we're seeing. I know that the recommendations from that abstract was that we should think about using PARP inhibitors, um, and that may be a role in 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 those patients who've got a number of double-stranded DNA breaks as a consequence of high-dose alkylator therapy. But I'm not sure how effective that will be because the, the, the net effect is that the myeloma cells still seem to be um, not going into complete overdrive. I, I, I don't know. This is kind of data that we're still um, learning about. Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting, as you said. I think it's it's important to follow. But uh, one thing that um, I'm I'm starting to kind of think about is clearly there is a big move with the EMNO2 data around using, you know, more than one transplant in yeah. tandem uh, for for patients. Clearly, if you're driving higher mutational burden, as you rightly pointed out, there was no large-scale deletions or uh, you know translocations seen. There were no driver genes being changed. Uh, at least at this particular readout. So we shouldn't overinterpret this, but then more than one transplant starts to sound uh, more concerning, as you rightly said, in those patients with uh, high-risk uh, you know, genetics. I mean, clearly we, we need effective therapies at relapse uh, uh, you know, for, for patients, uh, but I think what would be concerning is you know, whether alkylators would, high-dose alkylators would drive some of those uh, you know, clonal evolution uh, that would be difficult to be salvaged by the relapse agents. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. So, so the, the debate on high-dose melphalan continues um, clearly. So even though ASH is showing some very strong data, I think supporting the role of high-dose melphalan for newly diagnosed patients, there are some concerns being highlighted here with a spectrum of mutations that can occur following high-dose melphalan. So, so I think overall there's been some really interesting data coming out for newly diagnosed patients. So with that, I'd like to um, move forward and discuss uh, the relapse uh, field for patients with multiple myeloma and some of the emerging data that we saw at ASH. And I think what was really interesting was there was a focus around how to improve the pomalidomide backbone. So many of us are using pomalidomide uh, very commonly at relapse. It's a very well-tolerated and efficacious immunomodulatory agent and has a number of positive attributes, I believe, compared to thalidomide and lenalidomide. In terms of licensed products, esetuximab, pomalidomide, and uh, dexamethasone is available for use and is considered to be a standard of care. 
But many of us have been waiting to see the data for daratinumab in combination with pomalidomide and dexamethasone. And so the Apollo phase three clinical trial was reported at ASH. So Karthik, what is your take on the Apollo data set? And what is your uh, views on that compared to the Icaria data set? Uh, thank you, Rakesh. Clearly, very, very important um, for for us as well as you know we've been waiting for a long time for the data to map pomalidomide dexamethasone combination, and that's what Apollo serves up versus pomalidomide dexamethasone in patients with relapsed uh, myeloma. Uh, the median PFS on the data pomdex arm was just over uh, one year in comparison to about six months uh, on the uh, pomalidomide arm. So significant improvement in progression-free survival with the addition of data to map. Well, you can kind of say that is uh, expected. Um, because uh, A, because patients respond very well to CD38 antibodies if they are naive to CD38 antibodies, and combining CD38 with an immunomodulatory drug has been a success story in the upfront setting as well as in the, in the first relapse setting. So taken all of that together, data POMDEX data uh, presented at ASH clearly confirms that there is a very effective combination. The safety signals, which is very important in the relapse setting for patients who've had myeloma for a number of years, uh, because often they have poor accounts and you know side effects from previous therapy. There wasn't anything that was read out that was particularly concerning for us in using this type of combination. As you rightly say, we now have the ability to use isotuximab, pomalidomide, and dexamethasone through the Cancer Drugs Fund, and we're currently doing it. Obviously, there are slightly different trials. Isotuximab POMDEX only recruited patients who've had a minimum of two prior lines of therapy. So you have to have had two prior lines or more is how uh, the Icaria study was uh, uh, planned. Uh, the, although you don't compare, you can kind of look at the hazard ratios within the both, uh, both studies, and that looks fairly comparable is what I would say. So what you're getting by the addition of CD38 antibody to POMDEX is fairly consistent across both isotuximab and uh, daratumumab. But the interesting thing is daratumumab POMDEX in the Apollo study, a proportion of patients, about 10% of patients, were at, actually only had one prior line of therapy. So slightly earlier on uh, in, the, in their treatment pathway. Uh, obviously, playing devil's advocate, one could ask, well, if that is the case, should you have seen more? But we know that 10% uh, is a very small population. And if you look at a median PFS, you know, you are going to fall in the ballpark of, you know, where medians sit if you large majority of your patients are, you know, two two therapies and over. So for me, it was a very interesting study. Um, in the US, they've been using data POMDEX for a, lo a long time, but clearly we have ESA POMDEX uh, in Europe. And I think we'd be, um, you know, very uh, keen to, to use that for our patients. But I'm going to ask you, I found the Selenex or POMDEX data that was presented obviously with the COVID spin on it, all oral combination, mm. the Canadian study of Selenex or POMDEX, that was quite interesting. What is your take on it? Because obviously POM combinations are important. Yeah. No, absolutely. So, so I mean, I, I think that was the theme at, at this year's ASH was trying to work out the best partner for POM. So, so Selenix was a very interesting drug. It, it's a new class of drug and works in a different mechanism of action to anything that we have before. As you say, it's an oral agent and it clearly has effectiveness in the, both the triple class refractory and the more 
uh, refractory populations such as the penta refractory population, which isn't a population that we tend to see too commonly uh, in, in Europe. I think the data with single agents, Selenexor, whilst it shows some efficacy, has some problems in terms of the tolerability, particularly at the higher dose. And the constitutional uh, side effects such as the nausea, weight loss, anorexia seem to be quite profound. Now, what I found was quite encouraging looking at the data um, that has come out previously, such as the data in combination with Velcade, and again, the data that we're seeing at this year's ASH, which is in combination with pomalidomide, is that when you're able to reduce the dose of selenexor by combining it with another agent, it automatically becomes much more tolerable. And, and I think that if you can get selenexor to be a better tolerated drug, then it becomes a very powerful agent to be used within the myeloma uh, treatment space. So, so I, I thought the results were, were encouraging. Selenexor, POMDEX, um, uh, and they, I mean, they're still early data, but the responses were good and the tolerability seems to be, be manageable, particularly with the use of additional anti-nausea agents. So you're right, we are trying to minimize um, patients traveling into hospital, and so all versions are, are, are very good. Um, although I think it's going to be a little bit of time before we see Selenexor coming through with POMDEX. And I wonder if, rather than use Selenexor as a partner for POMDEX, if we're trying to minimize hospitalizations, just returning back to the Apollo study, of course, this uses subcutaneous daratinumab. And if a patient pre-medicates at home, then by the time they reach the hospital, they simply have a three to five minute subcutaneous injection and then they'll be able to leave the hospital quite rapidly. So to some extent, whilst they are still traveling into hospital, the, the exposure is minimal. Um, so there are different ways that I, I think about um, combining it. But, but just talking about pomalidomide partners, um, I was also curious about a study incorporating the addition of cyclophosphamide. Now, in the UK and certainly in Europe, we, we, we use a lot of cyclophosphamide. It's, it's an oral agent. It seems to be well tolerated. The myelosuppression doesn't appear to be too bad. And there's a very strong scientific rationale in that there is some immunomodulatory effects in terms of the depletion of T regulatory cells. And so we often incorporate cyclophosphamide um, in our treatment regimens. And for example, pomalidomide cyclophosphamide dexamethasone is commonly used. So, so Karthik and Ash, there was some data where daratinumab cyclophosphamide pomalidomide was being used, or um, pomalidomide could be added to the daracidex uh, combination um, at the time of progression. What's your views on the addition of cyclophosphamide into these regimens? Yeah, I think that you make very uh, important points. There are two points I'd probably try to put out. One is, if you look at our natural sequence that has now evolved, you have a VTD induction, then you have a DVD, and then you have an IRD. Uh, you would have had your high-dose melphalan single hit, but you are very alkylate and naive at that point. So when you are uh, dealing with the pomalidomatex-methone combination, clearly we've just discussed that you can use these dex, but take uh, uh, for a moment that you've had a patient who's had daratumumab previously and therefore cannot use isotuximab, you're absolutely right. You know, adding in cyclophosphamide is extremely attractive. There have been previous very small studies that have been done with the addition of cyclophosphamide. Our own uh, Mark 7 uh, approach had that, uh, uh, you know, as uh, the control arm of, of the study. So addition of cyclophosphamide clearly improves uh, outcomes in these patients. The second point that you make, 
the metronomic kind of dosing of the cyclophosphamide does have an immunomodulatory capability, and people have demonstrated that in, in different uh, trials and different combinations. So I think it's uh, something that we know how well to use. Uh, we are using it less, and it does have the immunomodulatory capability, which is important when you go in with POM. And therefore, I think it's a very useful addition uh, for our patients. Yeah. And, and what, what, what intrigued me at ASH was that there were two um, presentations incorporating cyclophosphamide. So we could see clearly that daratumab pom Cydex was a good combination. But also there was a presentation from Mary V. Mateus looking at carfilzomib cyclophosphamide DEX. And that was also, I think, very attractive. And, and that also talks to the MUC5 data set that came out of the UK looking at carfilzomib Cydex. So, so, so I, I would completely agree with you. I think cyclophosphamide is a drug that we're not using so much, but I think has some very very strong efficacy in, in myeloma. I was just um, also going to touch on another partner for pomalidomide, which is Belantamab mafodotin, a BCMA antibody drug conjugate. And Suzanne Trudell presented the preliminary data for Belamaf with PD, looking at various different schedules of Belantamab to try and minimize the ocular toxicity, which we all know is part of the signal of this drug. But I was really intrigued because the response rates were incredibly high. In fact, they were higher than the response rates um, published or presented from Apollo and Icaria. And the data isn't quite mature enough to have a progression-free survival um, output. But I'm beginning to wonder, what, what is the best partner for POM? Do, you, do we think it's a CD38 antibody? Do we think it's a BCMA ADC? Or do we think it's an alkylator? What are your thoughts, Karthik? Absolutely. I think we will. We, this area is continuing to unravel. But let's, in a very practical sense, what I would like to say is we are moving CD38 antibodies to the upfront setting. Mm. So we are not going to have a CD38, uh, you know, naive patient in the relapse refractory setting. So as you rightly said, it's very sensible for us to look at other combinations. You did say Celanexor is a completely new mechanism of action. That is interesting. And Belantamab, I mean, I was quite struck by that data. I think it's a very, um, uh, obviously a very early data set. Uh, we all know that the data on Belantamab has been published uh, and it's approved in the U.S. now and, and patients are getting benefit from it as a three-weekly infusion of BCMA antibody drug conjugate. And with the addition to pomalidomide dexamethasone, obviously very, very, very high response rate. I mean, one issue is the eye issue. And as you know, um, uh, Rakesh, um, you know, GSK are trying to look at kind of different schedules to try and mitigate uh, against uh, these, these corneal events. Um, you've been involved in some of the early development of this particular agent. Can you just shed any further light in this area? I mean, what is the thinking? Uh, I mean, clearly patients are responding, and I even have some compassionate use patients who are responding really, really well to, to the agent. It's important to say not every patient responds, but those who do yeah. respond, respond very well. I mean, what is your thinking? I mean, how do we actually mitigate these corneal events? Because it's an important combination. You're absolutely right, and and this is an area which is undergoing intensive research, and there's a lot of collaborations with our ophthalmology colleagues to try and understand this. The mechanism for the keratopathy is still not quite understood. What we do see is that there are microcyst-like epithelial changes which appear on this front surface of the cornea. 
typically the deposition is on the periphery of the cornea and then as time goes on they migrate into the center of the cornea as they migrate towards the center of the cornea there is uh, an increased refractoriness of the light as it enters the cornea and this leads to blurring of vision photophobia and a sensation of gritty eyes now we've been using belantamab for a number of years now since the first in human studies and there's a very clear pattern of what happens you dose a patient the keratopathy appears and then the keratopathy moves from the periphery of the cornea into the center and then disappears and so what you see is this resolution of keratopathy changes so the main management at the moment we are recommending is dose interruptions and delays so actually, one of the abstracts that we presented at this year's ASH was looking at some of the long-term follow-up data from DREAM2, because one of the concerns people often voice is, hang on, we are having to hold belantamab for quite a long period of time because of these keratopathy. What's happening with the myeloma response? So the data set that we showed is that we looked at a subgroup of patients who had had delays of greater than 63 days. 63 days equates to three cycles because it's 21-day dosing. And if you look at those patients, the vast majority of those patients maintained their clinical response. And in fact, a significant proportion actually improved the depth of their response despite having no treatment. And it was only a minority of patients who progressed whilst having a delay in their treatment. So it seems that there doesn't there isn't a real concern with interrupting treatment. And by interrupting treatment, you allow the resolution of the keratopathy to occur and repeat dosing to happen. Now, in terms of how best to mitigate this, well, if you look at the PK data, and this was presented at the AACR earlier this year, the severity of the keratopathy seems to correlate with the trough levels of belantamab. And so one of the ways to mitigate this will be by giving more extended dosing so that you're not repeating the dosing before the, the trough has really reached its nadir. And so what you're going to start seeing is more infrequent, or I should say less frequent dosing. So for example, in DREAM6, we are now evaluating less frequent dosing of belantamab in combination with bortezomib and dexamethasone. So you're going to be seeing six to eight weekly dosing coming out in different schedules to try and mitigate that. Good, good. I think it's very, very exciting drug. We obviously we are investigating in a number of different combinations, moving it up front. But clearly, BCMA targeting is the absolute theme in in myeloma, and a lot of abstracts at ASH focused on, uh, you know, bite, T cell engager, mm. all different ways of T cell redirection in in targeting uh, BCMA. There was a raft of drugs now for uh, you know, T-cell redirection. What are your thoughts on BCMA uh, redirection and what excited you the, the most? Or if not, how do you see all the different players working in the myeloma space? You're absolutely right. This was a RAM session at this year's ASH, which is the BCMA-targeted uh, therapy space. And what we have essentially playing out is three classes of uh, treatments. We have the CAR T-cells, we have the T-cell engagers, and we have antibody drug conjugates. We've already talking, spoken about belantamab, but there is another ADC under evaluation, MEDI-2228, which is a BCMA-targeted ADC, which has a different payload compared to Belamav, and, and this is PBL, which causes cross-linking of DNA. What that study showed was some really interesting efficacy data, strong monotherapy efficacy, I would say, in a relapse and refractory population. 
However, it has its own distinct uh, toxicity profile, and that's really what we're seeing with these ADCs. They have their own distinct toxicity profiles. You get some myelosuppression, which one would expect, and you get some neuropathy. What was slightly unexpected when I looked at that was uh, we, that some patients develop grade three pleural effusions, and there was also grade three photophobia. And in fact, the incidence of photophobia led to a high number of treatment discontinuations. These patients had uh, extensive ophthalmology examinations and they don't have keratopathy, which you see with Bellamath. And so it's, it's really not quite clear as to why they're getting this photophobia. One of the theories is that it could be a, a, the innovation of the cornea that's being affected. So, so this is clearly a potent drug. And I just think that a little bit more work needs to be done to try and understand this toxicity because there was quite a high number of discontinuations. So I think that's really important to, to, to watch. The, the CAR T cells are still continuing to impress, I think, everyone in terms of the incredibly high response rates and high MRD negativity rates. And the BCMA CARs are, are now showing more mature data. The BB2121 data set is showing a medium progression-free survival of around 12 months at the highest cell dose. The uh, Janssen CAR, the CARTITUDE study hasn't quite read out, but the PFS is likely to be over 12 months on that. You are seeing different profiles in terms of cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity. And of course, if you look at the bispecific T-cell engagers, they also have cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity. One would argue that the toxicity profile with the T-cell engagers is somewhat more manageable compared to the T-cell, the CAR T-cells, because when you give a patient a CAR T-cell, then you get the rapid proliferation. And as the rapid proliferation occurs, you get the toxicities. Whereas with the T-cell engagers, these are mitigated by means of step-up dosing with pre-medications, including dexamethasone, and by the half-life of the drug itself. And so what you're seeing is much lower levels of CRS, predominantly grade one and two, and, and far lower levels of neurotoxicity, because neurotoxicity can be a bit of a problem uh, when, you, when you're giving that. So, so I think there's some incredibly interesting data playing out between them. But what I wanted to uh, just highlight was the role of dual targeting cars, because what we saw was some very interesting data uh, of BCMA and CD19 combined car coming from one of the Chinese groups. And I think this is a very interesting approach because CD19, whilst is not commonly or highly expressed on plasma cells, is expressed to a much lower level. And we think that potentially CD19 is expressed on more primitive plasma cells, which may be potentially tumor initiating cells. And of course, CD19 is highly expressed in B lymphocytes. And so this helps T-cell expansion to occur because there's more antigen around for the cars to engage with. So I would watch this space with the, with the dual targeted cars. That's very, very interesting. Can I just point, make one other additional point? Because you, st you were starting to kind of think through how uh, all this BCMA targeting would work, you know, for, for us as clinicians, you know, in our practice. One thing that was striking for me is obviously the cytopenia that we see with the CAR T cells is significantly lower in um, the uh, bispecific uh, approaches, which is probably because of the lymphodepleting conditioning that is given early on. I mean, uh, we all know how managing our patients is often difficult in the relapsed refractory setting with poor counts. So that looked uh, more attractive to me. And as you rightly said, you could titrate up the dosing as you keep giving it to patients. Do you start to already see an approach where you could have a particular type of BCMA targeting for one age group versus another age group? 
Yeah. So, so when I look at these abstracts, I, I look at the age range because you look at the median, but what, what's important is the top, that's the, the, the eldest patient. And what you're seeing is actually, it's quite interesting that there are some more elderly patients being treated with, with CAR T cells, but I really do think that the toxicity is more manageable with the T cell engages. So, so certainly at the moment, because these studies are open in, in the UK, we're running these trials and I'm assessing my patients, is that I'm, I'm, I'm more likely to, to enroll and to treat a, a more elderly patient with potentially some more comorbidities with a T cell engager compared to a CAR T cell where actually we don't quite know quite how that proliferation is going to go. And if you've got a patient with a high disease burden, then you could get quite substantial, significant grade three CRS and neurotoxicity. So, so you're absolutely right. There is this delineation that we're beginning to, to see. And I think what's going to be very important is the PFS because the difference with, with the CARs and the T-cell engagers is the continuous dosing with the uh, T-cell engagers versus the CARs, which is a single hit. And, and with that, actually, Karthik, I wanted to see what your thoughts were because what we also saw was just, just outside of BCMA was that there was a T-cell engager targeting GPR5CD, which is another target on myeloma cells, and one targeting FCR receptor as well. So we're seeing new targets occurring. Do, do you, did you see a role of kind of T-cell engagers being given sequentially? I mean, how, how do you think this is all going to work with different targets coming through now? I have to personally say I quite like that. One of the things that was concerning for me, uh, as you know, because we run clinical trials for BCMA targeted agents and some of the trials didn't allow patients who had prior BCMA and so on. I don't think that area is quite as settled as to if you had a BCMA targeted agent, can you have another one and so on. That will come through the wash, but it's nice to see that you can go after other target using the similar sort of technology. And I think that's what Talketamab, which is the Janssen product offers, which is the GPR uh, C5D, and there are both IV and subcut approaches that has been explored uh, with this agent. Over 100 patients treated uh, in this uh, Talcatamab study, and I've been quite impressed with the response rates that we see. We should always say that early on in these trials, you tend to uh, collect a more indolent patient, so your response rates are going to always look a bit amazing. Uh, but I certainly think that availability of telketamab in clinical trials in the UK, which is planned for next year, would be, would be very exciting. And clearly, FCRH5, which is another uh, uh, you know, target that you can go after, you know, present from UPenn data, very, very interesting very early data, but clearly showing responses in patient population. You start to conceive an idea in your head as to whether you go CD38 targeting, BCMA targeting, and then you know something else with obviously the PI, the DEX, and the um, uh, you know immunomodulated drugs added into the mix. So that is very simplistic in our way of thinking, but it's nice to see that there are other uh, areas that we can uh, antigens that we can target. So very very exciting, I have to say. Mm. And you're absolutely right. So this is incredibly exciting. But one of the problems that we're still seeing is the relapses are occurring. And we're seeing this particularly with the CAR T cells. We're seeing that the T cells don't seem to persist past a year. Relapses are happening. Of course, the T cell engager data is still a little bit immature, but I'm sure that this these is not a cure. So, so, and this is one of my concerns because there are an awful lot of these um, T cell redirection strategies 
occurring. And, and I'm thinking to myself, well, actually, these T cells are, aren't going to be functioning too well. If a patient relapses off a T cell redirection strategy, one of the commonest reasons for doing that is because of T cell exhaustion. And so the question is, how are you going to salvage your patient after that? Um, and, and which brings you to the question about T-cell fitness and how we should best prepare our patients to receive these immunomodulatory agents. Um, have you got any thoughts about kind of resistance to these T-cell strategies, um, about some of the data that we've been seeing? Yeah, so you're making very, very important points. We have to all remember that myeloma, unfortunately, is a disease of the, the older population, you know, 70 plus. So we are going to uh, see a degree of immunosenescence in our patients. So therefore, T-cell redirection strategies could fail uh, because of those uh, fundamental issues. But some work is being done to look at uh, why some patients may actually have uh, resistance to agents. And I found one of the abstracts to be very, very interesting. And that is around a single patient uh, being treated in the US where uh, they got BCMA CAR T therapy as their fourth line therapy. Um, initially, at diagnosis, the patient did not have any high risk lesions. And the patient did go into a very, very good remission with drop in BCMA uh, serum levels after the initial treatment. But the patient did relapse a few months later and patient was attempted to have another BCMA CAR-T infusion, which unfortunately failed. Interestingly, what they found in this particular patient is that the 16P uh, segment of the genome in this particular patient, which is where BCMA resides in the short arm of chromosome 16, was uh, uh, by allelically deleted. So one of the arms was deleted, structural change in the other arm was mutated. So clearly this patient had complete BCMA loss in the plasma cells that were coming through and therefore BCMA targeting was not effective. It may be sounding like a single patient, but what was concerning is they went back to some of the uh, earlier myeloma genome data that's available through working with cell gene BMS, and that shows between 4 to 15% of patients have 16P loss at diagnosis. And the more concerning bit is actually it co-locates with patients with DEL17P, and about 70% of patients with DEL17P can have a degree of 16P loss. This is very worrying for uh, the, the very fact that, you know, this could be an easy uh, way of myeloma clonally evolving uh, in our patient population. So I think that is, that is something that, that absolutely concerns me. And what's more concerning is DEL17P has been our biggest concern as a group of patients. And we tend to collect up quite a lot of DEL17P patients by about third or fourth relapse. About a third of our patients have DEL17P. So this is an area for us to watch. And this is probably why I like the fact that we have other targets like, you know, DPRC5D and, you know, FCRH5 that we can go after. So I would sum up saying that in the novel agent section, there's a lot of hope uh, you know, for our patients, but there's plenty more for us to find out. Absolutely, and um, thank you very much, Karthik, for your insights. That there's an awful lot of excitement that's happened at ASH. I think this is one of the most positive years, I think, for myeloma. 
at Ash. And actually, uh, rather unlike most years where I come back and feel a little bit depressed when I return back to the UK, I'm actually very encouraged because a lot of the data that I think that we saw is directly applicable to the practice that we're having in the UK. A number of clinical trials are enrolling with these novel agents, and I would really encourage everyone to uh, send their patients in to be enrolled into these clinical trials so that we can make this uh, progress. So thank you very much, Karthik, for uh, your insights and, and the discussion that we've had at ASH, and we look forward to seeing this data as it enrolls. Thank you for listening. To keep up to date with the latest Hemonk news, including cutting-edge content straight from ASH 2020, visit vjhemonk.com. Finally, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at vjhemonk to join the conversation.